All right, so we're in Mark 4, verse 1 through 9. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teachings, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some, fe- some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell amongst thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And the other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you so much for your word um, and just all the things that we can learn from it. I thank you for Josh um, and just the message that he's prepared for us. I pray that you would um, open our ears and open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. We love you a lot. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning, you guys. Happy summer to you. Glad you guys joined us today. Uh, it's great to be back with you uh, from our UK trip. And uh, if you want to hear more from about that trip, uh, we're going to have a share time in our worship gathering on July 21st. So I hope you'll be here to hear more about how that trip went. It was a great trip. Um, man, uh, transitions in life are really hard. And, uh, but it's been incredible to see, um, just to be honest with you, it's been incredible to see how God is really using uh, the transition that our church is in um, to bring us closer together as a church, uh, to strengthen and mature us. And it's just been um, a blessing to say the least as your pastor um, to watch all of our, our awesome leaders just stepping up, uh, people joining the church during this time, and um, just you guys serving one another. Uh, that's, that's such a joy for me to see, and uh, it's just been incredible. Now, I, I get to preach four more sermons uh, to use your pastor, and uh, I'm not going to cry during all four of them, don't worry. Um, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's hard to discern uh, what is uh, most appropriate to preach in those final moments. I get to have with you. And hopefully someday I can come back as guest speaker or something. We'll see. Uh, I think during transition and changes in life, things can feel disorienting or unstable, which is completely natural. But in these moments, when it feels that way, I think we really need to ask God to give us perspective, to see what we need to see, to be anchored where we need to be anchored. Because what he's doing in our lives and in this world is so much bigger than what is directly in front of us. So so after much prayer, honestly, I settled in on preaching what I was already planning on preaching like six months ago this summer, and that is the parables of Jesus. The reasoning why I think this is so good to do so is because Jesus' parables were short, fictional stories 
that are based upon very real, firm, and true stories. He's telling you things that never really happened, but they're telling you about something that is happening, something that is concretely true. See, we see how parables work in Scripture. It's it's a short, simple story used to illustrate a spiritual lesson. I mean, even even the word itself, parable, it comes from two Greek words. Uh, The first word is para, meaning beside, and the second word um, is bolas, to throw something beside something. So beside and to throw something beside something. So basically, Jesus is saying this is like this when he tells you a parable. This is like this. Something's beside something else, to put something beside something. It's, this is like this. And the parables of Jesus, guys, they're showing us in a pictorial way what the kingdom of God is like. That there's a real king, and he's establishing a kingdom here. You see, we are a part of something so much bigger than just the branch. We really are. We are a part of something that can never be shaken, Hebrews 12 tells us, and that's the kingdom of God. No one can ever destroy that. And so during this season of transition, I want our hearts and our gaze to fixate on Jesus, our King, as he leads us, and in so doing, see what this kingdom of his that we get to experience and be a part of is like. And so last week, Joshua Montana, who's one of our elders here, he taught about the parable of the pearl of great price. And today, guys, we're looking at Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower. And really, these, these, these parables that surround it, though we don't have time to get into them, there's some other parables here. And we begin here because Jesus says to his disciples in verse 13, if you want to flip to verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? If you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand all of them? Right? How, how are you going to do that? So we must start here because Jesus says, if we don't get what this parable is saying, then we might as well check out a little bit on the other ones. In other words, there's something fundamental that we must understand about this parable if we're going to make sense of any of the other ones, right? We know how this works in life. Like if I register to take Calculus 2, but I've never taken Algebra 1 or Algebra 2 or even Calculus 1, I'm not going to understand Calculus 2, am I? If I've never run a 5K, think I can run a marathon? I can die trying to do that, you know, I might crawl or I don't know, someone might carry me, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to be able to do that, right? We could go on and on. There are things that we must understand if we're going to make sense of other things, for me to participate in those things. And that's the weight Jesus puts on this parable. And this is, this is why this parable is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. You see the same parable in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what we find this morning is a bunch of stories that if you like botany, Man, you're, you're glad you're here this morning, okay? You're going to be glad you showed up today. Um, Blake, here's looking at you, man. This is your day. This is all for you, okay? Um, so here we go. Uh, this is the, the very basic outline here. It'll be on the screen. The seed of the kingdom, verses 1 through 9. The soil of the kingdom, verses 10 through 12. And then how should we respond? How should we respond? So first we see the seed of the kingdom. I'm just going to read again these first nine verses here. Follow along with me in chapter four. It says, again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. This is the second time in Mark he's doing this. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat. The crowd's so big, he gets on the water and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. 
And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, over, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, so we have a sower, right? And the way this sower sows seed is a, is a common farming method at the time of Jesus. They wouldn't go out and till up the ground. They just head out, cast seed everywhere, right? We know that he's not in his yard, because the ground is very different no matter where you go. A lot of people have made comments about this. He's going out into the far countries and he's casting seed everywhere. Jesus here is primarily the one that we're meant to understand as representing the sower. You get more in tune with this in verses 10 and following, but Jesus primarily the one that represents the sower, but in a very real sense, the sower is anyone who goes out and dispenses the gospel or the word of God. We see this in verse 14. What do you see in verse 14? It says, the sower sows the word. So we know that the seed that's being sown is the word of God. This is not a mystery to us, right? The sower sows the word. These basic thoughts are important not to skip because we must always remember that regardless of what polls people do in our day and age or what opinions people have, or what creativity that we think we have to offer ministry, the way we primarily do ministry, the ingredients that we have, that we have to have there, the ingredients that have to be there, the primary activity of the kingdom is sowing the word of God in the lives of people. The primary activity when it comes to the kingdom of God and what God is doing in this world, the primary activity is sowing the word of God into people's lives. See, God works through his word. That's how God works, fundamentally. That's why we must never substitute the reading, the hearing, the preaching, the teaching, the encouraging, the exhorting that happens when we proclaim God's word, when we speak the gospel to each other, which we talk about all the time here as a church, when we speak the truth in love to one another, as Ephesians would tell us. This is the primary activity, you guys. There are no substitutes for ministry. This is it. It hasn't changed and never will. I mean, you could, you could sow a lot of things. You really can, and there's a lot of really good things that you could sow even in ministry, but it's only the seed of God's word that will bring out any type of vegetation is what you see here. If I replace the seed that I need, God's word, if I replace that seed that I need with a seed that I think is better, I'm not gonna get what I'm after. I mean, to, to use a different example, if I were baking cookies and I thought, you know what, flour, it's overrated. You know, I don't even have any on hand. I think onions will do, right? If that, if that was my thinking, right? Or if I just love, I was like, I'm just going to put sugar in where there should be flowers. There's all sugar. I love dessert, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know. What, I don't even know what you're going to get, right? Or if you love arugula, I love arugula. Like, let's just do arugula as the base. You know, let's just do that, right? It'll be great, right? You're going to have some funky cookies, that aren't even gonna really be cookies. You can call them cookies, you can deliver them as cookies, but everyone's gonna eat them and go, that ain't a cookie, is it? No, you need flour, right? If I sow something in place of the seed of the word that Jesus says produces growth in the kingdom, 
I don't know what I'm going to get, but it's not going to be the kingdom. The seed is the word, and we need sowers. We need sowers. The second thing we see here is the soil of the kingdom in verses 14 through 20. Just read with me again here, 14 through 20. Jesus is explaining what he's, the parables illustrating to his disciples and those around the disciples. He says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while. Then after, when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for good things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The soil of the kingdom, heart conditions. Have you ever noticed that people can have completely different responses to the word of God? Have you ever noticed that? Like you could all hear the same message and someone's like weeping and repenting and asking for forgiveness or something. The other person's like yawning and they're like, when's lunch? What are we doing for lunch today? You know, we have these different responses. There, there are real forces at work internally and externally that are determining our Christian experience and fruitfulness. We have a heart condition, you guys. Right now, as you sit in that chair, you're, you have a heart condition. You have a heart condition. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your hearts above all else. We're, we're being told here that the seed of God's word, it lands in our lives. And based upon the soil of our hearts, does what it is capable of or because of various conditions is unfruitful. So we need the seed and the sowers, but we need the right kind of soil, don't we? So I just put these four different heart types here on, on the screen for you. If you can put those up. We see first the hard heart. We see the shallow heart. Jesus talks about the crowded heart. And then he finally talks about the good heart. Now you're probably already assessing your heart, aren't you? You're, you're doing that, aren't you? Or maybe your neighbors, I have no idea. But you've probably all decided that you have the good heart, I'm guessing. You're like, well, I'm obviously the good heart, you know? Um, just, that's fine, you know? Let's just be more prayerful about it this morning, right? The, just be, it's okay, these aren't terminal, okay? We might develop them. You, you might move into one and out of the other. And so the first thing that we see here is that the seed falls on a heart that Jesus calls the hard heart. It's essentially the unresponsive heart. That's the heart that we see here. I'm just curious, how, how does a heart become hard? How does your heart become hard? What do you think? How does a heart that was once softened by God's hand become hard again? How does that happen? Guys, pain and disappointment, those things are not relative. They're real. 
And those things bring hardness. See, see, our hearts can be like a pathway, which is what we see here. So hard from all the travel, all the feet that others in the world or our circumstances in life have trampled on us. You've been disappointed, you've been hurt, you've been burned. And now your heart is, is maybe even jaded towards God and his world just in general. And Jesus describes these soil conditions in verse 15. He says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. See, the horrible truth that Jesus is trying to save us from is that Satan takes advantage of really difficult places. That's what he does. He looks to take away the truth of God's word. In the most trampled upon, hard-hearted places, that's where you see the birds, right? We're told in scripture that he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He takes advantage of those hard-hearted people. If this is you, you might find yourself distancing yourself from other believers. You might find yourself getting angry when anyone brings up God or his truth, and as vividly as, as myself, for a good five years of my life when I was just running from God and even claiming I didn't believe God existed, and then I was like, okay, he exists, but I can't even know him. When I had friends or my parents or anybody try to quote the Bible to me or talk to me about God, I would internally get angry, like physically angry. I did not want to hear the Bible at all. Just crazy to me, I'm telling it to you now. It's kind of weird, right? But that was me. My heart was so hard. It was so hard. Or, or honestly, uh, you, actually, you, could, you could have a hard heart and appear to be quite spiritual. You're playing the part really well. And even when I listed the soils, you immediately thought, well, I'm the good one, you know? Because your heart is so hard and you don't even see it. You go through the religious motions. You might even study your Bible like all the time. You can talk to people all the time about things that you know and want to debate those things about the Bible or whatever it is. But ultimately, you aren't really looking for God to say anything to you. And ultimately, you probably hope he does it because you know what that might mean for your life. But there is hope because God has the power to till up your trampled heart and provide the soft depth that it needs. We secondly see the shallow heart, which is really the impulsive heart. It's the shallow heart. I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever gone like, you're trying to dig a hole to plant some flowers, or you're trying to plant something, and immediately as you start digging the earth, you're like, this is a good spot, and then you hit just rock bottom. There's no hope, right? There, there's no depth to what you're seeing there. It looked good initially, but then you just get frustrated because you're like, man, I can't break past this wall, right? You guys ever experienced something like that? What do you do? You realize you can't work with this soil. It's not going to do what you need it to do. And so Jesus describes these people's heart conditions in verses 16 through 17. He says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. See, these are the people who actually might appear to be good, healthy soil, they may even be emotive upon hearing the word of God and make great claims about what they're going to do now and how their life will be different tomorrow, and they'll be the first to even relay that message to every single person they come into contract, contact with. There's an excitement to their life and reception of God's word. This might be you. 
They may even believe for a while, Jesus says, but eventually, when their faith is tested or tried, because there's no depth to their spiritual heart, the plant withers and dies. See, see, this is the heart that the moment difficulty comes, when pain, when heartache, when suffering or persecution is experienced because of their faith in Jesus, not because you're a jerk, but because of your faith in Jesus, whatever was experienced or promised is denied and extinguished. Instead of that root digging deeper, producing more strength, it cannot, it dies. So in other words, there's a receptive surface to this kind of heart, but a high, high wall of self-preservation that the root of God's word does not break past. This person is excited for Jesus, but on their own conditions. It's a facade. And it's in the persecution and in the trial that the truth of the soil is discovered. But there's hope because God has the power to break up that rocky bed below the surface to where you aren't just a seasonal follower of Jesus, but you're a persevering one. Then you see the crowded heart, which is really the preoccupied heart. I'm tempted to say that if the last heart isn't the most common that we see in the church, in the community of Jesus today, this one is. If I were guessing, if I were placing bets this morning, I would bet most of you are like, this is mine. Jesus describes these heart conditions in verses 18 through 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. These are people who have the seed in them. It grows. They seem faithful. Even they they cherish the word that's given to them, but they are so surrounded and infatuated with good things, not necessarily bad things or unimportant things. Maybe it's just a desire to feel secure or constantly seeking comfort because life is hard or whatever, you know, or you're more concerned with what other people think about you, whatever it is. And the focus goes from the eternal to the temporary, and the word gets choked out and dies and doesn't produce fruit. Just as I thought about this, I think there's really two reasons for this. Um, Just as I've prayed about this and thought about this this week, I think there's really two reasons why this is so prevalent in our lives. First of all, we often can't distinguish between what's a thorn and what's a plant. We often don't discern and distinguish between what's a thorn and what's a plant, what's a weed and what it is that we want. Um, I once actually planted a vegetable garden uh, because someone already made raised beds in my backyard and I was like, I should do something with that, you know? And I even had a friend who knew something about seeds and soil and light and watering. He came and he helped me like plant these things, okay? The problem was stuff started to grow, which doesn't seem like a problem. But when stuff began to grow, I realized, I don't even know what I'm looking for. Like, I don't even know what's coming up right now if that is a weed or if that's like a carrot leaf thing, right? I don't even know what that's called, right? I had no idea. Yeah, if it's like a thorny thing, I know that's a weed, right? But some of the other stuff, I was like, I have no idea. So what did I do? I just let it all grow. What happened? I got nothing. I got no fruit, no vegetables. I got nothing out of those beds. Why? I didn't know the difference. I didn't know what I was looking for. So maybe you don't even know the difference between the plant that comes from God's word or a weed, And the only way you'll ever be able to distinguish is if you're in God's word. 
you're in God's word, you know the things that God's word produces. Then over time, you begin to notice more and more what a weed is and what actually comes from that seed. Just like you need to know what a vegetable stem looks like in order to decipher the weeds, you need to know what God's word says about the fruit that we're looking for in our lives to distinguish between the two. But secondly, I think another reason for this is we like the weeds more than we like to admit. We kind of like the presence of the weeds. You have to hate the weeds and, and love what the weeds destroy and choke out in order to not want to have the weeds in your life. I'm not going to lie, there's actually this weed that grows at our house, and it has some like minty herbal smell to it, and uh, it has these little purple flowers on it, and it's this ground cover weed. Some of you might even know what I'm talking about right now. Um, and so it kind of looks decent. I actually love, it smells good. It's really easy to pull up. So I'm like, I could pull that up whenever I want. Okay. So, so I actually don't mind these weeds. I, I strangely like these weeds. Okay. I've never admitted this before. Okay. But, but if I don't, but I don't take care of those weeds, right? Meaning if I don't pull them, if I don't uproot them, they will destroy what I really want and love from my yard my flowers and my plants that I've planted to grow and flourish. If I just tolerate them, it'll ultimately suck up the resources that that plant needs in order to flourish and grow. What I mean is that there may be things in this world that are a weed that choke out the good eternal stuff God is doing, but you kind of like it. It smells good, it doesn't look all that bad, and it doesn't even bother you in a lot of ways. But if you tolerate it, it robs you of the good seed of the water and nourishment that the good stuff needs in order to grow. You really miss out. You really miss out. Um, I, it made me think of the uh, great example that the Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard, who lived in the early 1800s, he, he told this um, story that has always stuck with me. And he talks about this guy who's a very prosperous man, and he's riding in a carriage late at night. It's just completely dark outside, and it's a beautiful, cloudless, starry night. But he's inside of his carriage, and he has all these lanterns lit up. And so the fact that he's inside this carriage with all these lanterns lit up, he's nice, he feels very secure, he feels very cozy, he feels really comfortable, but he can't see the stars because he's so crowded in that carriage with the light that he's created for himself. But the poor peasant man, who's at the very front and on the outside of the carriage, who has none of that security from those lights, none of those comforts that come in that carriage, he gets to see the perfect, beautiful, starry sky, doesn't he? Because he's not surrounded by those things, he gets to see what the man in the carriage is really missing out on, so Kierkegaard said, those deceived ones live in the temporal existence, either occupied with necessities of life, they are too busy to avail themselves of the view, or in their prosperity and good days they have, as it were, lanterns lighted, and close about them, everything is so satisfactory, so pleasant, so comfortable, but the view is lacking, the prospect, the view of the stars. If you've ever gone backpacking, you know this. The best part about backpacking 
is getting away from all the city lights. Because that, when night hits, you can see a lot of stars, can't you? When you get away from the comforts that you normally have. See, if this is your heart, though, there is hope because God is the good gardener. And if you ask, he'll come and uproot the weeds and thorns in your life that choke out his word. But you got to want the good stuff. You actually have to want him to make those changes. And the fourth heart we see is the good heart. That's what Jesus calls it. It's the responsive heart. And he describes its conditions in verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. See, some seed falls on good soil. And this soil represents the heart that's tilled up, it's cultivated, it's soft, it's ready for a seed to fall into and flourish and grow into what the seed is capable of. What's really interesting about Jesus' words here is that the typical crop that would be yielded in his day and age would range between a five-fold crop or a 15-fold crop. So if you made 10-fold on your crop, that was considered a good, a good harvest, right? That, that's what that was considered. But here, Jesus goes, no, 30, 60, 100-fold with this kind of seed. And 100-fold is actually meant to tip you off to a story that you find in Genesis 26, the story of Isaac, where, where he get, reaps a harvest, and the harvest he yields is 100-fold of his crop. And we're told in Genesis chapter 26 that that number 100 represents the blessing of God. What I mean is, in other words, the kind of crop this seed yields in good soil is something that only God is capable of. In other words, when the soil of our heart isn't hard, when it's not deaf, when it's not shallow, when it can endure persecution, when it's not overly concerned with the cares of the world, when it's good and healthy soil, things grow from that heart that reveal fruit that only God is capable of producing. There will be things in your life that if, if they were pointed out, if you have this kind of soil, someone points it out, you would go, I have no idea God did that. I don't even know how. God did that. There must be a constant pruning in this heart, though, which can be painful because there will be weeds pulled before they choke the plant. There'll be shovels digging, tilling things up. But the end, the ultimate abiding in Jesus that we see in, in the places like John 15, abiding in his word and his love for us and displaying that love, it bears fruit, good fruit that will show where our root is and will be a display of his power and goodness to the world that will glorify Jesus. So guys, these are the options of the soil that our hearts are capable of, according to Jesus. So right now, as you sit in that seat, Jesus would say, one of these conditions is your heart condition that the word is landing upon this morning. So how do you respond? How do you respond? Well, notice actually in verse nine, what does Jesus say? He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You got ears? Who's got ears? Everybody got ears? Hear, right? You gotta hear, that's what you gotta do. Jesus is a reckless sower. We've already seen that. Seed is just going everywhere. So the word is for all, but the responses are very different, and we get a window as to why in verses 11 through 12. What does he say? 
He said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Which is always kind of confusing, the way it's pulled and played here for a lot of people. Jesus pulls and plays from Isaiah 6, And he says, I'm speaking in parables because of what's going on in Isaiah 6. I want you to think about Isaiah 6. That's why Jesus quotes it. And they all would know Isaiah 6. Which if we had time to walk through Isaiah 6, you're free to turn there now if you'd like. If we had time to do so, uh, that'd be great, but we don't. So suffice it to say that in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says to God, when God says, who will go? Who should I send? And Isaiah says what? Here am I, send me which a lot of people misuse that as like a missionary call type thing. They misuse it because of what happens next. God says, awesome, Isaiah, tell them to keep seeing and hearing, but not seeing and hearing. And Isaiah's basically like, oh, come again? You want me to go say see and hear, but don't see and hear? What, what, what is happening here? What's happened is Israel had become such a hard-hearted, trampled path that the cares of the world had fattened them up, which is the word used there in Isaiah 6, to where they were hearing the word, but it wasn't doing anything to them. And so Jesus is saying here that he teaches you in parables this morning as a word that either warns your heart or it warms your heart. Like Israel was warned in Isaiah 6, the word that he was to go and speak, Isaiah was, was a word of warning, and they weren't going to receive it. And so if you keep following Isaiah chapter 6 all the way down, God is going to exile Israel. He's going to judge them. He's going to whittle them down to a mere remnant, and he says he's going to chop down this tree, which is the image he uses to describe Israel, into a stump, a mere stump. He says, but the seed will remain. You know that seed was? That's the the king who's speaking this parable. God God is gonna start again through Jesus. That's what he's come to do. He's teaching about the kingdom. These words warn or they warm. This tree is gonna grow from this seed. That's what's gonna happen. There's there's insider-outsider language here. Jesus is giving life to insiders and warning outsiders to see their denseness and come on into the kingdom. So in Isaiah 6, you see they continue on hearing but not hearing, and God exiles them and whittles them down to this, this stump. And they have this seed that's left who's coming in a kingdom, a new tree is beginning to grow. So let me ask you again, how do you respond? Because Jesus says there's really two different types of people here. How do you respond? What's the posture you should have this morning as you hear something like the parable of the sower? What do you do with that? Well, you might have a sense of frustration. You're like, I'm not seeing the fruit promised here for my life. My, my growth in godliness is not happening as fast as I'd like. My desire for God's word is weak. So you're just frustrated, that's your response. Maybe your response is you feel this sense of inspiration. 
I'm going to start reading my Bible, you know, more this week. I want to till up my hard heart. I'm going to cut out these cares of the world that are choking out the seed, you know? You're inspired today. Is that what you are? You might have a sense of apathy. You're just kind of yawning this morning about these words from Jesus, which, again, would be a warning. It's like, oh, that's a warning. If you're, if you're yawning, if you're apathetic towards this, that's a warning. That was Israel's response in Isaiah. You might be in assessment mode. You're just like, well, I'm just going to think about which soil I am for a while. I'm going to analyze it, put in the data, see what comes out, you know? You see, your response this morning isn't just about hearing. It's not just hearing, is it? Because do you notice that every single type of soil hears? Do you notice that? Every single type of soil hears. The hard heart, it hears, verse 15, when they hear. The shallow heart, verse 16, hears when they hear. The crowded heart, verse 18, hears those who hear the word. The good soil, verse 20, the ones who hear the word. They all hear. Your response isn't hearing. What's the difference? Well, the difference is pretty clear if you look at all these other verses, because you'll notice that, the, that only the good soil is said to actually accept the word. It's the only soil it accepts the word. See, the, the shallow heart is said to receive the word. None of the other soils are even said to receive or accept. But we know that there's a difference between receiving something and accepting something. These words are different in Greek and they're different in English for a reason. Receiving is not the same thing as accepting something. Just for an example, if I gave you $20,000, I just came up to you and I was like, hey, I feel like you need $20,000. I'm gonna give you $20,000, right? Some of you, maybe this doesn't work for you, okay? But nonetheless, if I said, here's $20,000, you might fight me on it. Not physically, but you're like, oh no, you know, we have to do that like American thing where we're like, oh no, it's fine, no thanks, and that kind of whatever back and forth. You know, and finally, let's just say you take it, right? You, you take it from me, but you still have a decision, don't you? Are you gonna merely receive that money or are you going to accept that money. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know the difference? So you can receive money, but you can completely feel embarrassed by it. You can feel like you're putting me out. You can be really reluctant. There could still be a sense of pride in you that says, I'll take it, but I don't really need it. Sure, I guess if it really makes you happy, it just, if it makes you happy, yeah, totally, I'll take that. You could still receive it, but you don't accept it, right? Maybe put it to you this way, the same is true when someone asks you to forgive them. You just received a word of confession, didn't you? It, it still hit you, it landed on you. Someone asked for your forgiveness, they apologized, you received it, but did you accept it? See, to accept something takes humility, doesn't it? What if you, if you humbly receive, though, is what you ultimately need? What if you humbly receive is what you ultimately need? What if you actually accept it? That'll do something to you, won't it? That's the difference between all these soils. And so the posture, the response that I think we should actually have this morning is what? Acceptance, but not merely acceptance. The posture we should have is gratitude. That's what, accept, that's what it takes to accept something, it's gratitude. It's that humility that comes at the base of all gratitude. 
we should be in awe that seeds are even being sown in our lives. That, that wanting to hear. See, God has revealed himself to you. He's revealed himself to you, hasn't he? He's given us the word, his written word. He's told us what he is like. And many, many people have lost their lives so that we could have a copy of God's word, the seed of the gospel that it contains in our hands this morning. Need I remind us of people like William Tyndale who died in 1536 at the young age of 42 because he was translating the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew texts into the language of the people. And he was killed for doing that. He was strangled and tied and burnt at the stake. And his final words before his death were, Lord, open the eyes of England, open the king of England's eyes. Open the king of England's eyes. And you know what happened? Within four years, that same king who ordered him to death ordered the publication of four English translations of the Bible, all based upon his word. Just four years later, that same king. Tyndale certainly is not the only one. Many have actually given their lives attempting to bring the Bible to people in parts of the world where the Bible is illegal. I have family members right now in Papua New Guinea that are trying to help translate the Bible into people's languages they actually have it. They're sacrificing their lives in order for that to take place. Why? Because people know the power of God's word, don't they? Why else would you do that kind of stuff? In Birmingham, as we were walking the streets one night on our UK trip, we saw this modern-ish building with this plaque on it that said this, John Rogers died in 1555, burnt at the stake for helping translate the Bible into English. There's a plaque there on this building, random spot. He was the first martyr of the Marian persecution. Marian persecution referring to Bloody Mary, the queen, just over a matter of a few years of her own reign, murdered hundreds and hundreds of Protestants. See, the Bible you hold was precious enough to so many that they spilled their blood for us to have it. This seed is being sown is powerful and it produces an inevitable reality that shines the light of Jesus, the Messiah's kingdom in this world. But guys, more than a word from God, if that, if that won't cause you to want to accept it, if that doesn't make you grateful, more than a word from God, we should sit here and hear these parables with a sense of gratitude because we don't just have stories. We don't just have words from God. We have been given God himself. We have, as we are told, the word made flesh, don't we? This will be on the screen as John begins his gospel. It says, in the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The world was made through him, and nothing was made apart from him. We see next in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Guys, it doesn't stop here. John 12. Jesus, the word made flesh, talked about his death. He said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, referring to his death and resurrection. The hour has come. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. The seed of that stump dieth. My gosh, is it bearing fruit? Do you see you don't just have the Bible, the word of God cast upon your heart, the king of the kingdom, the son of God himself, the word made flesh, he's fallen into the heart of the earth in his death. And he's sprung forth from the earth alive, bearing fruit. And it's because the word himself died and was raised that God's word is now sown into the soil of your heart and can actually produce more than mere information in your mind. It can give you more than interesting thoughts. It can give you more than to-do lists. It can give you more than a burdensome law that you can't even uphold and live by. His death and resurrection made a way for his word to be written on your heart. It's the last one on the screen. Hebrews 10 says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. This is the covenant under Jesus as Savior and King. He says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Guys, in other words, Jesus died so that the word might not simply be in your ear this morning, that it might not simply be in your mind, but that it be in the soil of your heart. And now when you go out with a powerful gospel, you don't just have information that informs people, you have words of life that transform people. See, this is your new reality. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your reality, so how are you going to respond? I pray that we would respond with gratitude and the humility that accepts it no matter what he says, knowing that what will grow from that will be far more precious than anything else that we're holding on to. Father God, this morning as we uh, respond to your word, I do pray that you would just break up the soil, the hard-heartedness in our lives. Lord, I know this week there's been so many moments where I'm like, my heart is so hard, Lord. I know that I'm guessing so many people in this room are, are sensing that right now or um, sensing just the thorniness, the crowdedness of their heart this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would just do a work in our lives, that you would uproot the things that shouldn't be there, that you would till up the soil, that we might be people who love your word and receive your word and praise Jesus every day that he came proclaiming that word. Lord, I pray that we would respond to you now um, through song and through communion in a way that really brings glory and honor to you and that strengthens our community here. In Christ's name I pray, amen.